Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life, and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. On today's episode, we have Ben Donsky. Ben lives in New York and he runs his own firm. It is a placemaking consultancy company that looks at developing park areas and maintaining those uh, those areas as well. He also runs his own little podcast. Um, What's the podcast called? It's called Little Bit Leave It. Little Bit Leave It. And that explains um, or translates Love Island to our American cousins over the pond. Um, I think I, I listened to a couple of episodes and it was absolutely amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Ben also has a bachelor's in urban studies and he also has a master's in city planning. So I think you'll have a great perspective on what the podcast is about today. So, um, we'll, we'll start with the first little bit. Um, we'll go into your sort of childhood and we'll ask you, um, what sort of things did you do in the outdoors, uh, as you, when you were younger? So I was very fortunate to grow up across the street from a state park in upstate New York, about two hours north of New York City. It was actually in a state. So funnily enough, right, most of our parks in the United States are not the former estates of rich people. Uh, I know that is something that is a little bit more common in the UK. And I should also say, Craig, thank you you for having me on the podcast uh i really do appreciate it and looking forward to to this conversation um yeah so i grew up more than across from the vanderbilt estate Hmm. in uh, hyde park new york and from a really young age so i'm i'm i turned 40 this year and parenting standards in the 1980s were a little bit different and so my parents let me explore that state park from the time I was probably about five or six. Um, They let me do it by myself. And, uh, you know, me and a a friend or two would go exploring through this giant old estate, which had, of course, manicured lawns and landscaped areas and formal gardens, but also um, great natural landscapes in fact, a tributary that fed the Hudson River ran right through the park. And I have lots of memories walking alongside that. And in addition, we had a huge um, wooded backyard area. I mean, not really our property, but we abutted a really large forest, so explored that. And that's really when I you know, started to just fall in love with spending time in, in parks and in the outdoors. Um, that grew to, you know, interest in hiking different climates and areas where I might not be as familiar with the, the plants and the animals. Um, so started to do a bit more of that, uh, as I got into young, uh, adulthood. Oh, nice. So it, it was very much you just sort of going out and discovering it. Did you go out with like any of your friends or um, anything along those lines? Or was it just a lot of self-discovery? Um, it was a lot of self-discovery. And then I there was one friend in particular who I did a lot of uh, exploring with. And um, yeah, it was uh, 
a great uh, way to spend as a kid. Well, that's fantastic. Did you did you do any sort of contemporary sports or anything along those lines when you were um, at that age? Yeah, I I played uh, you know football or as we call mm-hmm. it soccer, right? I played that most. It's my most. I feel like that's the most popular sport among American youth, um, though it does not translate into adulthood. But uh, it's another discussion. Yeah. Um, I played when I was a, a younger kid. I played soccer, but then I went into um, basketball and uh, then later lacrosse. Um, but you know, basketball, a very different type of uh, environment than uh, soccer or lacrosse. Um, and then I'm also a runner. So that's as an adult, that's been, you know, one of my primary ways of interacting with the outdoors is going on runs. Um, you know, before I had kids, I could run for a very long time. Now, you know, maybe seven or eight miles and I'm probably done. But um, uh, that I think is also, you know, one of my favorite things actually about living where I live is that I am less than a half mile from uh, the beach and I've got forests that I can run to. So I have a great run that I do that takes me through a state forest, takes me along uh, the coastline. Um, so still get that chance, even though I'm living in, in, you know, New York City, still get that chance to connect with nature. And that's quite amazing because I think certainly in, in my head, there's a stereotype that New York is just this uh, metropolis of high-rise buildings and stuff like that. So to be to sort of have so much woodland and, and beach area to go to so readily is is quite refreshing to hear. Um, so it's that's quite that's quite amazing. So you you have spent a long time in the outdoors and obviously you said you ran further have you done anything like a marathon or a half marathon or anything along those lines yeah i've done a few half marathons um but that also convinced me that i did not want to do a full <laughs> marathon that was a little bit i could do i've the longest run i've ever done is probably 15 or 16 miles not yeah. in a race well, that's still a good effort like a half marathon is still a pretty strong effort i have to say yeah, and it doesn't kill your body the way a marathon would, I think. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, because I woke up the next morning after doing a marathon, um, and I, I'm, I was like, I was so surprised. I stood up and started walking around, and n- there's no achy bones or anything like that. So, and, and I mean, I didn't do half as much training as I should have done for it. But just, so I think you'd be pleasantly surprised if you actually went and did one. Okay. All right. I, I'll take it under advisement. <laughs> So, uh, what um, we we sort of touched on, um, your parents allowed you to go out. Did you actually go and do anything with your parents or your grandparents in in the outdoors? Oh, maybe a little bit, but truthfully, um, you know, my dad is not the most uh, outdoorsy type of guy so um kind of any camping that i did was either with friends or um until maybe 11 or 12 i was involved with scouts so i did a couple camping trips there i think um so no not not much with with the family honestly so it was very much sort of your your friends group and 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 you going and doing a lot of self-discovery uh and using the scouts as a as a a medium for that as well um you know yep it's a it's a fantastic organization that yeah empowers a lot of young people to get out there and 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 well be prepared like like their like their motto says so i mean that's really interesting that a lot of it was all, all, all on your own and and did that sort of lead you into going into your uh your bachelor's and your master's and what you work in now is is your love for the outdoors or was that just something that happened no <laughs> no I, I think it's i don't think that my you know relationship with the outdoors actually had much to do with my uh academic pursuits because originally why i went into urban studies 
had nothing to do with parks. I did not think that that was going to be my mm -hmm. career. I went in because I was really motivated to try to help um, America's declining cities. I was, I became fascinated with um, urban decline and as you call it in UK, urban regeneration, mm -hmm. redevelopment, and, and how do you take these areas and make them, um, you know, make them active uh, again. And, you know, gradually thinking about ways to economically develop them responsibly, you know, without, um, without displacing people and creating harms like a lot of our projects um, have done historically in the United States. And so I kind of fell into the parks uh, world a little bit by mm -hmm. accident. And then once I, you know, once I fell into it, I committed to it and decided, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. And that, and I fell into it because I had, um, an internship at uh, in the United States, they're called business improvement districts in the UK. I think there's a pretty similar name. Um, do you, what is the name? Do you know what I'm talking about? These their organizations, basically property owners come together and they say, we're going to pass something and an additional tax on ourselves. And we're going to use that money to um, pay for additional sanitation, security, maybe infrastructure projects. Um, so they do exist in the UK. I'm trying to remember the name of them. They're primarily in London, but they're also right. in some other we have, we have a lot of trusts and, and foundations that are working on that. So you've got like the National Trust uh, and um, there's some woodland foundations and stuff that, that will look to do regeneration. Um, but I honestly don't know huge amounts about it. So, <laughs> so I couldn't comment on that. Yeah. So, so basically in the United States, and I'm pretty sure you have a number of them in the UK. Uh, actually, I know you definitely do because I've been to the conference of this type of organization and there was representatives from Ireland and uh, all over the UK. So it's basically property owners create a nonprofit to provide these services. I was involved in, in creating one and then managing one. And then the company that um, I had been working for um, kind of uh, set me up with an interview for another company. And uh, that firm, about half of the business, or when I joined, it was probably about a quarter of the business was in managing and helping to manage and figure out how to manage parks and public spaces and how to make them active and exciting. And that gradually became 95% of the business of that company. And I became, you know, really involved in, yeah, figuring out how to program parks, uh, working with designers uh, and figuring out how to manage and operate them. Cool. And so, and, and so that sort of led you on to doing the, the I assume that was, was that before or after you did the masters in uh, city planning? Yeah, so after the masters is is when I really got into parks. I actually started working for that firm um, that did the business improvement districts and the parks while I was still an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. I was a senior in college, and the guy who was the head of that firm was considered, you know, one of the founders of the field of urban management in the United States, uh, and so the opportunity to continue working for him was you know, something I didn't want to pass up. So stayed working for him through, through grad school and actually continued to work there for about 15 and a half years or so uh, in total from start to finish. And then, yeah, started my own company um, a little over two and a half years ago. Okay. That's, I mean, it's fantastic because obviously my, my background is sort of adventure and and i'm a great proponent of getting in, into the outdoors and, and a lot of working on certainly when i was doing my undergrad uh a lot of research into uh green green spaces and green exercise so it was really great to actually hook, uh, sort of connect with you and 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 
talk to you about um, all that because obviously we had a meeting uh, last week just to sort of run through what we would be going through and um, I even mentioned the UN's uh, 17 goals and goal 15 is to protect, restore and promote sustainable use of uh, terrestrial ecosystems and sustainable uh, management of forests, you know, that, that sort of thing. So um, I, I've been working as a park ranger recently as well. So it's it's interesting to get it from a sort of a city planner's perspective and then flip it on its head and from my my perspective as well. So when you're taking on a project what sort of projects are you working on when developing a park or yeah just explain the sort of intricacies of it yeah so there's the if we're working to develop a new park from scratch our approach is to take the user experience and center that and the first thing that we want to do is create a program mm -hmm. and the way we do that we build a program is a bit different than a way, the way that architects and landscape architects will traditionally approach okay. a program. They approach it typically in a top down kind of way, meaning they will say, okay, we're going to take this whole section, whether it's a quarter acre, an acre, two acres, in the case of large, large parks, it might be hundreds of acres, and we're going to devote it to this use, whether that is passive recreation or um, urban plaza or um, you know, water feature or playground or dog park. They come up with these big macro uses, and they kind of fit them together in the space and adjust the sizes. Our approach is... is bottom up, meaning that we start by asking what are the very specific activities that people will want to participate in and what are the amenities that they're going to want uh, and what is the infrastructure that's going to be needed to allow all of those things yeah. to happen. And that results in a program that we think is more attuned to the needs of surrounding communities mm -hmm. and also one that ironically even though we're building it for all these very specific activities it ends up with in a park that is more flexible and can accommodate a much wider range of uses and activities um, and so once we've developed that program, then we work closely with landscape architects and they actually will design um, the space with some of those programmatic constraints mm -hmm. in mind. And then um, we also are figuring out during the design process, you know, how much is it going to cost to maintain this space? Are there ways that revenue can be generated in the space, maybe through a restaurant or food concession or um, you know, a variety of other, other ways? Maybe there is a, a, it's a great venue because it's downtown or something like that. It's a venue for potentially public events and festivals and markets. Um, so we look for opportunities to offset those uh, expenses because the parks that we create typically are much more expensive to run than your typical municipal park, which does not have a very robust, for example, fitness right. program, right? So one of the things that we will do is we'll go into a city and we will talk to people about, for example, with fitness, the various types of exercise activities that they might want to participate in, whether those are, you know, group classes or more individual activities, are they, um, you know, things that are more oriented towards senior citizens? Are there fitness classes that need to be more oriented toward, um, you know, other demographics? Like, is there, for example, a trend that a lot of um, people in an area are taking, like, we had in the United States about 10 to 12 years ago, Zumba was this 
huge trend. Yeah, and you're nodding. Yeah. You know about it. But now you can't get five people to show up for a Zumba class, right? But now we have to figure out, okay, well, what all those people who were doing Zumba, what are they doing now? And we find that out and we meet with fitness instructors and we try to build a fitness program that makes sense for the surrounding communities and also hopefully creates opportunities for fitness instructors to grow their own businesses. And so, um, you know, we approach parks, urban parks mm. anyway, as, um, as venues that are not just for recreation and relaxation, that in a city that parks can, can do a lot more than, mm. than that. Right. They can even do workforce development. And, you know, we, I've done that in a park in Dallas. So you, you can do all kinds of stuff in these spaces, obviously in a more suburban or, you know, um, more rural environment. The approach is is a bit different. We're not necessarily looking to activate the space mm. so much on a regular basis. The approach is more about creating special moments of discovery, creating small nodes of activity, um, figuring out how to integrate public art in unexpected ways, and then really just how do you sustainably manage um, these, these more suburban and, and rural park systems uh, because they typically have funding challenges on par or greater than uh yeah. the cities it's one of those things that um funding will always get cut to those amenities first that um are deemed less important but with the research that's coming out about green spaces and stuff it, it it's not those should be an important thing and certainly with all the, the mental health stuff that's going on at the moment as well what interests me is that obviously you say you flip it on you, on its head and you work from the, the bottom up um and you say that it costs a little more um, to actually produce these parks. But I was thinking there, do you have less destruction of the biodiversity there? So obviously you plant, you'll have grass areas and other things. If you work from that program up, um, does the park stay, um, I'm trying to say, yeah, the, the biodiversity stays better for longer rather than doing it in the macro setting and working yourself down because you're having to then plug in things into things that wouldn't actually be very good for the biodiversity that's there, you know, habitats and things like that. So is is there a difference there? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about that connection before, but I, I think there is one. I mean, I it's not necessarily um, a cause and effect relationship mm. though. What I would say is that our approach, which is, I think a more organic mm. approach in the sense that we're more community based. Um, I think that naturally uh, complements uh, an approach to landscape design that takes natural ecosystems and um, existing ecology and biodiversity into mm. account. It's not always um, a smooth, a smooth relationship, though. In between creating, you know, activity in spaces and the types of designers who tend to have that philosophy of our design is going to emerge from the natural ecosystems, right? We're, we're not, we're going to have our paths. Um, our paths will in some way speak to the, you know, the, the way the water has historically flown un or underground, mm. right? At this location or, um, you know, that, that we're going to use the striation of the geology to influence, um, you know, the height of, of different retaining walls. And, you know, while all of those approaches are like, yeah, very much out keeping a park 
in harmony with nature and with the natural ecology, right? There's also a little bit of attention because a lot of designers who promote that way of thinking, they don't really like people in their parks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is a a struggle. And and obviously I live in a national park in the UK and um, a, a lot of what, a, a lot of what the park focuses on is visit management and 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 looking after the place um and so that they have huge um drives for di- uh, biodiversity regeneration and, and all that sort of stuff but also trying to get people to act responsibly when they come into these parks so it's a balance there where you've got those people that want to develop parks specifically just for the biodiversity of of it and then obviously you want people in there because that's sort of how you get your money to make sure the park maintains that ability to to keep the biodiversity, if that makes sense. Well, and also this is the question, like why are we doing these parks in the yeah. first place? You know, are are obviously I, I love parks and, and um, I love nature, but, you know, if we're really looking to be the most supportive uh, to natural ecology and, and to biodiversity, we would probably take a different mm-hmm. approach than spending a ton of money to reimagine the landscape of a particular area. We would probably just, you know, manage preserves and, and um, do more in terms of conservation and we wouldn't spend that money on Hmm. parks, but we're spending that money on parks, I think, because we want to create a better quality of life for people. We want those parks to serve the surrounding Hmm. communities. And so what I always, you know, like to, to, um, to, to say to the designers who are nervous is that, there's a reason that we create management plans as well, right? Yes, we're figuring out ways to program a park to, so it better serves the community and draws more people, but also we can create management plans and support that with revenues um, to make sure that the park can be maintained. Because I think that's the experience of a lot of designers and landscape architects is they build great projects and, you know, cities, government agencies are just not capable of maintaining Mm. them. And so they're haunted by that. Understandably. I think that you're, you're right in the sense of the problem is, is that if you make it a park, people will come and visit it. So you have to put that level of maintenance in to make sure that it, it, it stays the way that, it was designed for and the premise that it was designed for in the first place so um i love the outdoor stuff um but we'll we'll just we'll park it there just for a second i'm sure we'll come back to it um i just want to move on to sort of talking about the the technology side of things um we'll start with with your your business and stuff um because you said that you did a lot of your work across the country as well so um how has sort of the advent of technology helped you in in being able to do that you know instead of having i suppose a guest having to fly across the country and stuff yeah um i mean i still have to travel somewhat but the uh covid19 pandemic i think has permanently shifted the amount of travel that clients are expecting us Mm. to do and that we have a much more sensible approach to travel now that if you have a real reason to be in a place that you cannot and what you need to do cannot get done unless you are physically Mm. there then that requires a trip otherwise we can rely on um, web conferencing right we can rely on different tools um for online collaboration and you know we can get um we can get a lot done that way you know the other thing that really helps is 
you know, there's just so much more in terms of uh, good photography, whether that's aerial photos or, you know, Google Earth is, you know, I think indispensable for, for people in our field. Um, and then there's also, you know, weather stations is also, you know, that's data that mm -hmm. can be really, really useful um, for us as well. And so, you know, so a lot of weather stations, you can, you can get that information publicly. People will broadcast um, the data from their weather station a lot of times. So all of that, I think, has really, really helped us, um, you know, do this work all over without necessarily having to travel. Well, I, that, that's that's fantastic that you say that it's actually changed how you work and, and made it so non-priority things where you'd normally have traveled before the, the, the pandemic, you've, you've sort of reduced that and, and the whole depending on your stance on the climate change stuff it, that it, it'll all it'll all be beneficial for it so i'm against climate change i i think that i want people to survive yeah yeah exactly <laughs> of course of course you do you know any human being wants that so um it, that was that was a good transition into the technology side of things so what sort of technology are you using on on a on a daily basis you know and it doesn't have to just be digital think of sort of clothes and things like that um and just talk to me about what you use on a daily on a daily basis well on a, on a daily basis a regular day for me is mostly in my home office now um but you know i think um in terms of uh, both my recreational running and when I do have to uh, spend, you know, time outdoors, um, you know, you mentioned clothing and, you know, certainly the development of uh, Gore-Tex and uh, other kind of those, those really insulating fabrics um, that has definitely uh, a pretty big impact on um, my ability to just spend a lot of time in spaces. So one of the mm -hmm. things that we do for clients is uh, we will do um, essentially audits of, of their projects. So if it's a project that we've worked on in the past, we can go back to it and spend two or three days there and you know, we will we'll spend a lot of time outdoors in the space in addition to meeting with staff and so forth. And mm -hmm. let me tell you, some of our cold weather uh, climates here in the States, I have a project up in northern Wisconsin, and it is, oh man, it is so cold. <laughs> it is much colder than I think anything in the UK. I really think, I don't think anywhere gets as cold in, as northern Wisconsin. Um, Certainly not in the UK. I think we had one of the lowest recorded temperatures was somewhere around minus 21 degrees Celsius. Um, but yeah, you'd have to head to the Arctic into Scandinavia and stuff to get, or um, sort of Eastern Poland or somewhere like that to get really, really cold temperatures. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, Scandinavia is, some of the parts of Scandinavia are fairly similar to, to Northern Wisconsin. I have a, I have a feeling uh, in terms of weather. So, have you seen a big change then throughout your life then? Obviously, you're saying now you've got big advancements in lighter, lighter weight technologies to keep you warmer. Um, could you imagine doing that when you were sort of in your early 20s or, you know, in your teens? I don't know. I, I think um, it would have been a bit different and we would have trying to think about maybe 15 to 20 years ago we probably would never have been able to just spend as much contiguous time outdoors. Mm -hmm. I feel like that now we are, you know, it's a lot easier to spend four consecutive hours um, in, you know, so I, I don't do the translation very well, but a lot of times we're at, you know, something like minus 
five minus 10 Fahrenheit uh, up there. And so, yeah. gosh, what would that be? Uh, I know that is it 17 point something is zero degrees celsius zero degrees celsius is uh is 32 degrees fahrenheit so okay then that's completely wrong but, <laughs> yeah but our our, deg our degrees are almost like twice the fahrenheit degrees are uh, almost twice one celsius degree so i i would guess that we're talking about something like minus 20 yeah oh it's seven is it what, zero fahrenheit to see yeah, so something like minus 20 Celsius would be, is, is probably... Zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, no, Seven, minus 20 would be... 17.7. Yeah, mon, uh, zero degrees Fahrenheit is 17.7. Oh, 17.7 Celsius, yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So that's, this that's was... what, that, I, got, I got them mixed up. <laughs> got it, got it. Yeah, so something, it was like maybe minus 10 Fahrenheit. And, and doing four hours straight of that is still very unpleasant. But I, I really think it would have been like impossible um, hmm. 15 years ago um, or 20 years ago. Um, the other stuff that we use, I would say fairly regularly, we use uh, equipment to measure light levels and equipment to measure sound levels. Um, mm -hmm. And we use those for, you know, different reasons. Sometimes with light, we're concerned with absolute light levels but more often we're actually concerned about contrast because um, lighting that's uneven creates blind spots which even if a place is very safe it can feel mm. unsafe if you have a lot of blind spots and people feel like they can't really see what is in front of them so mm. um, we pay attention to light levels also sound levels because, well, we want to understand the noise impact of different activities at different distances. We want to understand the, um, the baseline noise in spaces, because mm. uh, that's really important in helping us understand, you know, does a fitness instructor need an amplifier and a microphone, for example? Um, so yeah, we, we do that kind of stuff. And then, uh, obviously GPS is another big thing, especially with our phones and taking photos with our phones and compared to when I started out, um, and you're using a single purpose digital camera, which was not equipped with any type of GPS, at least what we were, you know, your standard commercially available consumer camera didn't have any GPS. So the ability to integrate photos into um, geographic information mm. systems, which is something also that we use, um, GIS uh, technology, um, you know, that is really, really helpful. Um, in terms of you know being able to take a photo and map it to exactly where that photo was taken in a really large area you know helps helps a lot and we i remember we used to have to just you know have someone taking photos for a mm -hmm. day or two and cataloging the photos and it was just it was a ton of work and so we don't have to <laughs> do that anymore um the other one is community engagement. Mm -hmm. So like I said, we ask communities what they want to do in spaces. And, you know, oh, again, with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of engagement was forced from physical spaces into online spaces. And I don't necessarily want to get into all the impacts around that because I think there are both positive and negative um, impacts mm -hmm. of that change. Uh, but certainly the, um, the ability to have, you know, digital open houses and um, tools on websites for people to leave feedback and comments, you know, again, tied to a very specific geographical location um, sometimes. So that 
that's something we weren't able to do um, 15 years ago. I'd say we were first able to do that maybe about eight or nine years ago is when we first started to have a little bit of online engagement. And it has just um, grown exponentially in terms of the volume. And then it's really advanced in terms of the tools uh, that are available. Um, and, you know, I'll, I will say, I don't think enough has yet been done to make uh, online engagement the principal or only form of engagement if you're doing it, if, if you're doing community engagement responsibly. I don't think we're there yet, but we're a lot closer than it's we interesting were. you you were saying about uh, the, the benefits and and uh, there's a negative side and there's a positive side to it because i'm going to force you into saying something about it now <laughs> so, how has it changed technology wise as as you've grown up because you you were touching on it there and, and it worked perfectly because you said 10 15 years ago you wouldn't have been able to do that uh, the sort of engagement that you've done recently. So can you just sort of give us an, uh, an anecdote of how it's changed as you've grown up? Sure. Um, so first I would say that engagement typically is plagued by this universal problem of a very small number of people have an outsized influence mm -hmm. in the engagement process typically because they have the free time and the interest in in showing up they're not representative mm -hmm. of the community unfortunately if they were representative yeah. of the community there would be no issue <laughs> but they're not and so um one of the things i would say that i've seen is that at first digital engagement when it was really limited to essentially websites and a Facebook page. It even though it was nominally interactive, it was typically something that, again, only a subset of the community mm -hmm. was really engaging with. Because, well, how are you going to find out about the website where you can go to to put input yeah. in into a project, right? It's Oh, you had to call the parks department, right, on the phone. And that's how you found it out. So this is, and again, this is not because people were trying to make it difficult. But when we were first doing project websites, you know, I don't know, 12, 14 years ago, the public sector was really just not, not advanced in terms of, of, of tech. And there was no way of, you know, they didn't have mm -hmm. email distribution lists set up. Um, you know, they didn't have, and, and not just through um, um, municipalities and their own departments, but you know, thinking about, at least here in the United States, the way that, you know, every public elementary school and middle school and high school sends out emails to the parents every week and has information about what's going on in the community. That's mm. didn't happen because there were, they weren't sending emails, you know? So I think gradually what's happened as the larger ecosystem for technology has evolved and advanced and that smartphones became something that was much more widely deployed, mm -hmm. the barrier to entry became a lot lower, right? And so now you can participate in community engagement by text message because you happen to walk by a sign that caught your eye, interested you, and say, oh, you know what? I do have an opinion on that. It's going to take me five seconds to submit a text. I'm going to do it. And it's free, easy, I'm done. So whether it's text messages, whether it is, um, you know, now being able to use apps, which are much more user-friendly, um, as opposed to going to a website, I think that is also a huge deal. So I don't know what the situation is in the UK, but in the United States, the majority of people with lower incomes get their internet access through their smartphone 
uh, mm -hmm. by accessing the internet through free or very low cost Wi-Fi. And so you don't need to have a desktop or a laptop computer to participate in community engagement. Smartphone ownership is extremely common in the United States now in most communities. Um, there are some cities where that's still not the case, but generally in your bigger cities, um, you know, even if someone might have a, a, a smartphone that's several years out of date, might have some damage to it, they're, they still have the ability to connect to the internet. And I think, you know, the digital divide is still a big problem, but, um, you know, far more people have, have access to the internet. And I think that the tools for communicating and reaching people have also um, evolved dramatically. And that's a big part of why it's so much easier for us to do engagement mm. now uh, online than you know a decade ago. So the interesting thing would be to ask you there is, it, it sounds like it's made your life a lot easier, but do you think it's a good thing that it's made your life easier? Because, well, I suppose that's a two part question really is, the first side of it is, it makes life easier to get in contact with the community to um, help with your planning and it gives and if you do it the way that you that you do it um, they get more say in what's going to happen um, and then I guess the the flip side is is um, yeah is it a bad thing that you have so much connectivity or, or you know that everyone has a smartphone and, and takes pictures of everything and that sort of thing Oh yeah, I mean, um, there's this huge tension, I think, between parks and being in the in the field that that I'm in, and you know the the fact that everybody's carrying around, you know, these little addictive digital surveillance devices, <laughs> and you know, I, I think um, a future where we are increasingly mediated from our physical mm. reality is a really dark and dystopic future, in my opinion. And I, I um, have real issues with the way that there has been a, a lack of, of, regulation and i think there are a lot of reasons for that but a lack of regulation into the mechanics of uh of of hmm. smartphone apps um in particular the um you know the the algorithms used by various social media platforms and the effect that that has on our brains um and our emotional well-being and you know disconnecting from technology and being able to really interact directly with your environment, whether that is a, a piece of asphalt or a, a lawn of grass, I think it's so, so critically important. Um, I mean, that whole, that the recent whole Facebook meta thing, I mean, it's scary and it's like and people are saying oh yeah it's very telling that like the 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 demos they're showing are people going to work in these really sterile uh, virtual environments i mean i don't know it's like i think i just want to call meta the shitty matrix <laughs> uh, <laughs> i i don't know I, I so there is this big big issue with people spending way too much time on their smartphones and i'm certainly not yeah. immune from that and there is also a lot of pressure for parks to provide free wi-fi free public mm -hmm. wi-fi access and for me for me i think there is this um really really big problem that we need to solve which is that parks, like I said earlier, parks mm. can play all kinds of roles in a community. 
And that can be, you know, maybe it's improving childhood literacy or like I said before, workforce development and, and you know, getting people um, the right language skills or resume uh, building skills. So those things are important and all those things can be really aided hmm. by free public Wi-Fi. However, I also really think that we have these green spaces so people can directly interact with with nature and with their environment and you know the problem is much much bigger than parks obviously but i what i think i find frustrating is that a lot of the conversations about how to integrate technology into parks um those conversations are really driven by the manufacturers right. of the technology and they're not necessarily looking to solve any particular problem through their technology. What they're mm -hmm. really looking to do is make a sale and they will say, okay, here's the solution for this problem yeah, that we just get, invented. You need to give us the best coverage in you your know? park as possible for us to make as much profit as possible. Well, it's not even about profits. I mean, I, I think it's right. Like, so basically, um, well, for the manufacturers, yeah, it's, there's a lot of it is, it is, does come down to, to profits. Yeah, that's, that is correct. I think, uh, but I, I think what's, what I find even like more frustrating is just, um, you know, a lot of folks who are well-meaning, whether they're in the public sector or the nonprofit sector, they are easily like brought along. They're a little too credulous, uh, and gullible. And mm -hmm. there is also this pressure on them. And I think we have to rem remind ourselves that there's a lot of pressure to keep up yeah. with the most current technology. And you don't want to be seen if you're, if you are a public sector official, you don't want to be seen as the dinosaur, as, as the people who are stopping the tech that other communities are getting, you know, your community's not going to get it because these politicians don't want it. Yeah. That scares politicians. Um, you know, think about the campaign just as an analogy. Think about the campaign that Uber ran. I don't know if they ran this in, in the UK, but here in the United States, the Uber was running these really aggressive campaigns saying your political leaders don't want you to have Uber. You need to pressure them to allow Uber to come in. And what these really what the politicians were really saying is like, yes, we want Uber, but we're not just going to allow a free for all. We want some rules here. But and I think similarly. Right. If you're um, if you're in a community and your park, your signature park is not getting the same technology that the signature park in the next city over got and that city from them got then you're going to feel like, hey, why aren't we getting this? We're ripped off. And a politician is afraid of, yeah. of that dynamic. It's interesting that you said about um, the negative and positive sides of, uh, of, the, of you know, having that connectiveness and having all of the, 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 the research that has been done into um, sort of social media. It, it's explained that you have two sides. You have a, um, a passive and an active user. And within those is that the active users are people like us that are making podcasts that people can listen to, um, you know, content creators on YouTube that, um, that it can be interacted with, manipulated and, and used for the benefit. And so on the flip side, you have the passive people, which, um, you know, those would be the people that are just scrolling through news feeds and not, not liking anything and just, yeah, scrolling through and, you know, on on the active side is that there has been shown no correlation with any sort of depressive feelings or moods or anything along those lines. But on the passive side, there is. Um, however, there was a caveat because there was a new paper that came out that said that if you do past three hours of active use, um, it will start. You'll, it will start to decline. So there is a there is a sweet spot of like three hours of being on. Uh, social media um, 
and then it starts to be detrimental after that sort of three hour peak and so not like it falls off the cliff but it starts to decline after that so it's interesting that you you say that that there's big ways of wanting to get people into parks but also having um connectivity for your general public and as you were saying you know you they they want to have that because they don't want to be seen not having the same as another park or, or something along those lines so it's really interesting and a lot of my research that i did is um into green spaces and stuff um you know it's getting away from that and um if you go out on for a lunchtime walk say um you know if you work in the city in new york or something and you go to the park um in the middle of it just for like a 10 15 minute walk you can actually help your uh, your ability to work in the afternoon because a lot of directed attention is used whilst you're working um and that is supposed to help regenerate that it's a it's a resource it's a finite resource in humans but yeah Oh yeah, I've got ADHD. You don't need to tell me about that, man. Yeah, I, I know all about the difficulty of limited uh, directed attention. Um, I, yeah, that's I think that certainly jibes with my personal experience of, of social media as well, which is that it is far more rewarding to be mm-hmm. act an active user than a passive user, and that even in active use um it it yeah there's there is definitely you know too much uh of something and uh, and i definitely there are certain platforms i probably Mm. use more passively and i probably feel more negatively about those platforms right um so that's really that's really interesting i mean i ideally right like i don't want to be um I don't want to be big brother. I don't want a parks Wi-Fi system to pop up after you've been on Facebook or Twitter for 10 minutes and say, Hey, notice that you're spending a lot of time on social media. Maybe you should uh, pay attention to nature around you. That's a little creepy. You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to want to go that far. Um, Because like I said, I think this problem is much, much bigger than parks. And I think like really the question that, we need to ask is like how can we make um how can we make parks engaging to people's attention and their and how can we make Mm -hmm. soft focus right think talking about different types of attention the soft focus type of attention where you kind of let your mind wander a little bit like how can we get more people um into that type of soft focus kind of attention where they're you know just like you said walking around through a green space maybe letting the mind wander a bit um you know when i was going to work every day in lower manhattan that was certainly part of my midday routine was you know go out grab a quick lunch and then you know walk around lower manhattan or battery park or something like that for for 15 or 20 minutes um, because yeah, makes, made me feel good, uh, generates thoughts, makes me more productive probably in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, how do we make parks engaging in an, in an era when attention spans are getting shorter and the first hmm. instinct of anybody when they have a free moment is to pull out that phone. And I don't know, it's a question we're trying to answer and I don't think we figured it out yet. No, I don't think so either. Um, and uh, uh, it's 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 started to help now with uh, regulation coming in for those sorts of those sorts of things now. But um, oh, in the UK, I guess we don't have anything. There's nothing oh, on the was, cards. I thought that was what that um, whole Congress um, thing where uh, Mark Zuckerberg was uh, had to go to Congress and talk and stuff. I thought that was all regular. Yeah. Oh yeah. He had to go to Congress, but nothing's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's all a show. It's, it's, uh, you know, I think without getting too much to, to into politics, it's like, um, there are the same people 
the same people paying for the Democrats to get elected at the national level are the people who are against the tech regulation. Mm. So Elizabeth Warren is only one senator and Bernie Sanders is only one senator. And, you know, ultimately there are way more senators, unfortunately, who through a combination of ignorance and self-interest, I think are just not going to ever pursue serious, serious regulation um, when it comes to social media. That's, that's great. I think we've covered a lot there, mate. That was uh, that was fantastic. Um, we, we, we've covered everything and it was a really nice uh, genesis for the conversation. It just moves really smoothly. So at the end of at the end of my podcast, I ask a, I ask a question. Uh, it's a very ambiguous one. Basically, if you had you, if you didn't have to worry about your job, time was time was no issue. Money was no issue. You could go and live off grid for a year anywhere in the world and do whatever you wanted to do. Uh, what would it be and where would you go? Oh man, that's a great question. So a full year, mm-hmm. right? So when I, uh, when I arrive, what am I, is it just like a plot of land I can do whatever with, or is there maybe a small structure on it's it? Com- What's it's the completely deal? in your own imagination. It's that, that's why All I right. ask it ambiguously. So, so you can, come up with yeah. what you want for that year. So I think um again, yeah, very, very difficult because there are a lot of places around the world that I would really like to spend um you know off grid time in. So you know some that come to mind um actually Wales. Um the northern Wales and and that nice. whole coastline there, super super cool. Can't wait to really see it in person. Have not yet been to Wales. Have been to England, but not Wales yet. Um, and you know, there's also um, one thing. I don't know if I would want to spend a year there, but I have a relative, like a great great uncle, who. Uh, I guess great uncle fought in World War II. He was in the Canadian Air Force. I don't know if it was a Royal Air Force at the time or what, but um, and there's a lake named after him. Oh, really? Basically, right near the Arctic Circle in Canada. Nice. So, like some of some of the folks in my family, we've talked about, you know, trying to like make a real trek up there. Uh, but I think I would probably narrow it down to a couple places and. Partially, this is because of my own geographical ignorance. Like I've traveled around North America and, you know, down into to Panama, and I've spent some time all throughout, you know, yeah, Canada down to Panama. Um, I've never been to Asia, and I've never been to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know enough about the uh, African grasslands to know whether I would really want to spend a year there, but looks amazing. Um, So I would probably choose either. um, So the Olympia national forest in Washington would probably be either the top choice or it would be um, up in the white mountains in either Vermont or New Hampshire here in the East Coast. I think the Northwestern part of the United States is actually the most beautiful part of the country. It's you know certainly my favorite part. Um, so yeah, I'm talking myself into it. I'm gonna go with Olympia, you know, the, the national forest yep. there. Um, as long as I can you know, figure out a way to um, to shield myself from the most inclement weather yeah. i should be fine and it's just so beautiful uh it's amazing i don't know if you know much about it no, I'm, I'm, if you I'm... haven't the pacific northwest i mean is is just from an ecological perspective um it hmm. is just it's amazing um there's no place else like it i think anywhere in the world if i'm correct yeah like it's a fairly unique climate Oh, because that's um, uh, yeah. I think it's a so, um, 
it's a it's a rainforest up there technically isn't it it's boreal boreal rainforest i might be wrong on that but yeah i know what you mean yeah yeah so um definitely go check out the pacific northwest if you make it uh over to the u.s it's a bit further than the east coast but i think well worth it in fact even though i'm a new yorker i am a little <laughs> bit west coast biased I, you know i, I kind of but if it were up to me all things being equal i, I probably would would be living oh, somewhere on the west coast well that's uh, fantastic. Well, thanks for that, mate. Much appreciated. Brilliant to have you on. And um, I think it was a great perspective, especially with, with your background and stuff. So really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, Craig. It was really uh, great to be on. And yeah, if people want to get in touch, um, I am on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple different accounts. If you want to talk about park stuff, uh, it's just at Ben Donsky. B-E-N-D-O-N-S-K-Y. Um, <laughs> and if you want to talk about Love Island, it's uh, L-B-L-I podcast, at L-B-L-I podcast. And uh, you can also check out my company, uh, www.agorapartners.com. That's A-G-O-R-A partners.com. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Big thank you again for Ben for joining us on the Unplugged Debate. Ben's got his own podcast, A Little Bit, Leave It. It's a fantastic listen, really low ball, good humour. And the one that he's just done about a little bit about Scotland with his co-host was fantastic. I was giggling all the way through it. Next episode, we have Sean Conway, the ultra-endurance athlete and author. And one last thing before we go, we've started an Instagram page, which you can find us at the Unplugged Debate. That shows behind-the-scene content and other content related around the philosophy of the Unplugged Debate. We're also starting a subreddit called The Unplugged Debate, so dive in and join us on there too. Thanks for listening. <laughs>